0: Big sky, big potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. Welcome to episode 85 of the Eastern Promise podcast, wherein we explore the full potential of the East of England, saluting scientists, elevating our innovators, and championing our champions. Earlier this year, Eastern Promise joined forces with Bidwells to highlight the huge opportunity in onshore wind power. Our expert panel shared their insights on planning, energy and the impact on wildlife and discussed current and likely future trends in the market. The audience was engaged and now we're sharing this event with you. And finally, Christmas just wouldn't be Christmas without a letter to Santa. So let's find out what's on your East of England wish list in 2023's final Crowd Sorcery. From Windy Miller to the mouse in Old Amsterdam, wind power has been part of the countryside for centuries. Indeed, windmills were first thought to have been used in 9th century Persia, so the principle is nothing new, and their use in generating electricity is something of a no-brainer. But there's obviously going to be a but. You may recall how in the noughties, onshore wind farm applications became incredibly contentious. Landowners were ostracised locally before the government put an effective moratorium on onshore wind in 2015. But there's another but. Times inevitably change, and the huge spike in energy prices caused by the war in Ukraine, plus the cost-of-living crisis, has meant taking a fresh look at renewable energy sources. Their impact on wildlife, long used as a fig leaf for opposition, is also less urgent than the overall effect of climate change and the loss of biodiversity. This was the context in which Eastern Promise was invited by planning consultancy Bidwells to chair an event to discuss the present status of onshore wind and why now might be the moment for landowners to consider or reconsider wind turbines. But that's enough yakety-yak from me. Let's cross over to the Centrum building on Norwich Research Park, where my urbane, witty and, dare I say, handsome co-host will introduce the panel. I'm Mike Rigby. I'm Chief Executive of Eastern Promise, which is a not-for-profit community interest company uh, working to visualise potential highlight opportunity, which is very appropriate as to why we're here, and celebrate uh, the awesome people like you doing amazing things in and for the East of England. Uh, We do this primarily through our podcast, the Eastern Promise podcast, which you can find on all the main podcast providers. We are now expanding to more live events, including one on this very research park in February. Core belief of Eastern Promise is that today, for businesses and communities, today is the best time to be in the East of England. Uh, We don't do this as taking the East as one amorphous blob, Um, but take each part, whether in Norfolk, Suffolk, Cambridgeshire or even Essex, uh, on its own terms. We don't stretch as as far as Surrey, Chris, I'm sorry to say, Um, but uh, we're growing, but not not quite that fast. Uh, That difference between those uh, various places is very much a strength, not a weakness. Uh, On to why we are here. I'm delighted to be hosting this Bidwell's bite-sized seminar, Switch On To Onshore Wind. Uh, One of this region's absolute core strengths is energy particularly renewables. Uh, I interviewed Peter Aldous, the MP for Waveney, yesterday, lowest oft as, as, as many of you know, where the huge port servicing um, the uh, the Greater Gabbard and and others to come. Um, and he gave me a great quote for the podcast that I've used several times already. Uh, we can keep the lights on single-handed. Uh, there's also, as he pointed out to me, no end date for renewables. There's no, we have to have it all packed up and put away and found somewhere for all the really toxic stuff to go. Um, Uh, The technology evolves and turbines improve as they come and go, but the wind will keep on blowing. And uh, uh, just as a bit of background, I was working for Norfolk MP in 2010 when Eric Pickles called in and recovered the majority of onshore wind projects, uh, what I like to call the Pickles Purge. Um, When it comes to turbines, he wasn't a fan. There you go. Well done. Um, I know it's early. uh, But along with the cost of living crisis, the war in Ukraine, Sending energy prices skyrocketing, along with net zero commitments, he said, turning the page. The policy environment, as well as the stigma of onshore wind and other renewables in local settings, has eased significantly. Uh, How much is significantly? And how extensive are the opportunities uh, in onshore wind right now? Where are they likely to be over the coming years? What is the nature and extent of any opportunity for landowners from onshore wind installations? So many questions. And we're just lucky we've got this excellent panel here to to answer them. Not just for you lucky people sitting here, but for anyone listening uh, around the world. And although wildlife, I'm glad Isabel's here, wildlife often cited as a reason not to proceed with wind turbine installations. Wildlife charities are keen now to focus on the larger threat to species played by climate change over over any any supposed threat by turbines. I'm going to start, though, to navigate this thorny thicket with uh, planning guru James Allflat. James, can you just tell us very quickly what you do and for whom you do it, and uh, what's the current planning environment with regards to onshore wind?
1: Yeah, thanks Mike. Um, so I'm James Allflat, a partner in the planning team at Bidwells, um, predominantly based in, in Norwich. Uh, been uh, doing planning for over 20 years uh, across both the public and private sector. Um, I also specialise in environmental impact assessments, which uh, means managing, coordinating um, and assessing the environmental effects of major development projects across a range of of development sectors, including renewables uh, and the wider energy field. So in terms of what the current planning framework looks like for onshore wind, I think it's fair to say that um, the planning process hasn't helped onshore wind in recent years, um, and I think that's predominantly thanks to Mr Cameron and Greg Clark back in 2015 when they took it upon themselves to take onshore wind out of uh, the NSIP regime and put it to the local level again. Uh, that in itself I think probably dropped onshore wind applications overnight and I think you can count on, in single figures how many successful schemes have got through since that time. So in the last couple of months, we've seen quite some radical changes in terms of government policy and direction of government policy where it comes to onshore wind. Um, Back in September this year, Michael Gove, uh, the Secretary of State, uh, in his written ministerial statement set out a very clear update on where government policy was going with regards to onshore wind. And uh, those changes came about almost immediately into the national planning policy framework. We can obviously go into more detail later uh, about what those changes would be, but but that's obviously a a key move and a key shift for government. Alongside that um, is also the long-awaited Levelling Up and uh, Regeneration Act, which came into power in October this year. Uh, Within that is the requirement for what they call national development management policies to be produced by government. And certainly whilst we are yet to see the detail, you envisage that that's going to include a a key topic around onshore wind and the government's approach to that. Um, And I think that's a very important step forward because those documents are going to start to override local plan making. And if there is a conflict between what central government is proposing in those policy statements and what's in a local development plan the national policy will take precedence. So that's a bit of a step change from where we've been over the last few years, where it's all been about local decision-making and really significant community backing for onshore wind projects.
0: Could you see, James, um, a further softening of that position, um, whatever happens post-election?
1: Yeah, I think whichever political colour you are, um, there's a key commitment to delivering more onshore wind Um, and certainly some of the changes we're seeing coming through the national policy framework now will be built upon. um, We're certainly expecting revisions to the NPPF again before the end of the year and certainly further reforms depending which colour successfully gets into government next year. I think it's fair to say next year will be a bit of a pause in terms of planning reforms because of all the... The, the political shenanigans that will be going on next year. Um, but once we get through that and have a new government in place, I think whatever colour it is, um, I think it will be clear that there'll be further reforms getting us to a position where um, we're looking at onshore wind in the, in the balance. We're not just, as we previously were, fixated on the, the community backing of projects. And I think it's fair to say certain onshore wind projects failed previously, even if there was one opposition from a member of the public, which is very disproportionate. I think, as you've already touched on, Mike, with the energy crisis, uh, cost of living crisis, a lot more public awareness about the climate emergency that we're in. I think there's growing acceptance for onshore wind. And certainly, government are trying to strike that balance between understanding what the community want and still having that community support. But that's not the only consideration. Consideration around the UK energy security and all of those other things need to be held in the balance as well.
0: Thank you, James. I'd like to bring Chris in, Chris Thayer, at this point. Uh, Chris, tell us, uh, as, as James has done, about your role in Bidwells, and um, just to answer the question: Is there much interest from developers in the market uh, with those recent policy changes in mind,
2: and potentially greater interest on the horizon? Thanks, Mike. Um, Yeah, absolutely. The the short answer is yes. Um, uh, But firstly, my name's Chris Thayer. I'm a partner in the Bidwells Energy and Renewables team. Um, We, as a company, work for both landowners and developers. I principally work on the landowner side, doing everything from representing landowners to promote land, negotiate the best deals for developers, but also going through the process, probably most importantly, of appraising whether that development is right for that landowner before we start getting into that stage. In terms of where the market's going, um, I think it's a key reflection of what James was saying about how no matter which political party gets into power next year, all of them seem to be pro-wind in one form or another. And so we can all speculate that there's probably going to be positive change in government policy. How quick that's going to happen is all just speculation but there's enough confidence there that we're starting to see that in the market. Investors are starting to throw money into the industry and and want to get a piece of that. Um, The real challenge is timing it appropriately because if it could take three or five years before we see political change, that needs to line up with the development plan for a project. And what we're finding is that most developers take the view that it's gonna take three to five years to get a land deal in place, get a grid connection, get a planning application drafted. So if they start now, they'll be in the best position so that when that policy change happens, they can be the very first ones to chuck that planning application in and be in the best position to get that planning success. If they wait till after that planning policy change, they'll be on the back foot. It will take them three to five years to get that application in, by which time a neighboring developer could have got another project in and taken all the grid capacity or got the only, the only planning support that's going to be in that local area. Um, so. It is speculation, and every developer that I speak to is very honest about the fact that if they check in a planning application tomorrow, it probably won't be granted, but now's the time that they want to start securing land. I'm seeing a great mixture of a number of developers who are actively knocking on doors today, trying to get land signed up in anticipation of it. Others who are not yet knocking on doors, but are recruiting big teams, building the, the, the teams to start doing land searches, finding which regions they want to target, before they go out and do that land finding, and otherwise just investors behind the scenes pumping money into the industry, saying, we want a share of that. So we're at the crest of a wave, as I see it, that I think the developer interest is only going one way. It's only going to grow. And although we we haven't yet had that political change happen, as we get closer to that stage, the confidence grows, more money is going to come into the industry, and there are going to be more developers knocking on the door. It's really interesting. Thank you, Chris. Uh, uh, can I just check, uh, Don't this is just a show of hands thing, I'm not going to ask anybody
0: any questions yet. Yet, uh, Is there anybody here from the South West Norfolk area, sort of uh, east of Thetford? Gentleman at the back. Um, uh, I, I, I mention that because um, I'm not sure we'd call it an interreg, the sort of coffee break premiership of uh, uh, of the uh, the member for South West Norfolk, Wanderliss Trust. Um, during her time, she, she, she made much about her uh, antipathy to solar. So I just wanted to come on to that, Chris, and say, what would you say to those who are concerned uh, about developing land f- uh, for onshore wind and that comparison with solar? Because obviously, one goes along and one goes up in the air
2: yeah i I think that's a really good question and uh, what quite ironically um in at least the farming community that i've been speaking with is part of liz Truss's argument is she's protecting farmers by trying to ban solar but every farmer i've spoken to was thinking that's the exact opposite argument because they want solar to happen if they didn't want it to happen they wouldn't sign up with the developers um I think what's really nice is that we're, we're getting towards that stage of having more political support for a, a mix of energy supplies. So until now, well, at least since the de facto ban of onshore wind in about 2015, we've only really had political support for solar. So naturally, all the investors' money has gone into solar, and that's basically the only development we've had. Solar is great, but it's not the perfect solution for every bit of land, every you know, bit of grid management. And so we need a diverse mix of power. And there's, there's an interesting mix that when I work with landowners, generally they favour wind farms because it takes up less land but still produces a good revenue and has less interference on the use of the land around the panels. You can still keep farming that and you can change the crops, you can do whatever rotations you want, almost undisturbed by the turbines. Solar, by contrast, is more restrictive. The land can still be used. You can still graze sheep on it, but you're more limited in what you can use that land for. Um, so from an agricultural perspective, generally wind is less disturbing. But then from a political and public perspective, wind is far more visible on the landscape. It's you know, taller, got more moving parts. That's far more intrusive. And by contrast, solar panels can be hidden by a thick hedgerow. So there's very much a, a, an interesting argument of landowners generally would favour wind farms, or at least most that I speak to would favour wind farms over solar panels, but neither of them are necessarily right in every situation. There's, the right situation needs the right technology, and because we've only had support for solar, we've only seen solar developments, but if we get support for wind, we'll then see a better mix of technologies, and hopefully we'll then see more of the right technology in the right location, rather than just trying to shoehorn every type of Solar farm into every bit of land that we can get. Oh, that's, that's a really excellent point, thank you. And
0: um, what I, c- I can tell you, with some with some experience, he says with a wry chuckle, um, is that uh, never underestimate the ability of of, of politicians. Sweeping statement alert. Uh, to to leap on a a, a spurious reason to justify opposition to something. On that note, I, I would like to bring in Isabel. Uh, Isabel, could you just briefly sort of talk about what you, your, your position with the uh, the RSPB, which is a, a fine, very fine charity, who we featured on the podcast before, and uh, wh- how far the RSPB is actually willing, uh, contrary to what the public perception might be, uh, to support onshore wind?
3: Well, um, thank you, Mike, and thank you to Bidwells as well for for having me here today. It's great to be here. Uh, we always want to talk to industry because. Um, industry can make a big difference in addressing both the climate and nature crisis. Um, So I think when it comes to onshore wind, so the way we see it is we are in a dual nature and climate crisis and you cannot address one without addressing the other. Um, So we see renewables as a critical part of addressing the nature crisis. Now, that said, they need to be delivered in a nature-positive way, which means a strategic approach to land use, and it means citing things carefully. Um, but we we would like to see. Um, we don't think that the policy changes earlier this year went far enough. We want to see the moratorium on onshore wind fully removed, um, so that it's on a leving, level playing field with solar and other technologies. Um, and we actually have our own uh, turbine at RSP HQ. So um, you know we we support onshore wind. We just want it delivered in the right place, and that means kind of um, scoping out sites very carefully from the start and then taking a kind of mitigation hierarchy approach well, that's what we call it um, and um, where you site you choose the set site carefully and then you put mitigations in place um, and we um, have a big business conservation advice unit I've got a colleague uh, here today who, who who works in that team um, and and um, they, can, they advise businesses on how to, how to deliver renewables for nature. We've got a partnership with uh, um, a solar developer. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we, you know, we also think it's in the interest of industry um, to build this stuff in the right place because it's those applications which um, are put in the wrong place for nature, near very sensitive sites that get bogged down in the planning system and then end up costing the developer a lot more. Um, and 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 clogging up the planning system. So um, so yeah, I think I think there are, there are there are some caveats for us, but we really want to see much a much bigger rollout of onshore wind along with other renewables.
0: So could you just briefly go into how um, on a, a, an entirely hypothetical uh, mm. renewables project, mitigation hierarchy would a mitigation hierarchy would sort of be established and how that would work?
3: So you would scope out the site. You would look at the designations. Or national, we have. You know, Natural England have a database. You can look at the designations. You would scope out the site, look at what designations are nearby. You'd look at um, what habitat and what wildlife is on the site, and then you you would try to kind of choose you from your land option, from whatever land you've got. You'd choose the the area that is least sensitive for nature. You would then kind of look at what approaches you need to take within the site, whether there are any particular areas that you need to avoid developing on and some areas that might be less sensitive than others. Um, you know, it can really it can really be really, really specific. Sometimes it might be a particular corner of a field is much more sensitive than, for nature than other areas. So you'd start with that approach and then you'd look at um, what mitigations can you put in place? Can you bury the cables? What will be the cost of doing that? Um, is that going to make a big difference to the nature there? Government actually announced uh, community uh, benefits yesterday for, uh, for for new pylons, but um, the the cost for the developer will be a lot lower for, for burying cables. Um, so I think that's that's quite a good thing because um, it because it shifts uh, shifts the weight towards burying cables. And then there are things like radar technology, cameras, um, marking the blades. A lot of birds, unfortunately. Uh, the collisions happen at night because they can't see very well so um, you can use sound you can use camera radar uh, you can shut down the turbines at certain certain types at certain times of the day which is what we do at RHQ but obviously um, probably the best solution is is to do radar and camera technology which shuts it down for just a few seconds um, so that that bird um, doesn't doesn't hit the turbine um, And then you look at kind of vegetation management and things like that as well um, and habitat replacement um, to ensure because displacement can also be an issue. So the birds actually will just avoid the area and then lose that habitat because because they just avoid the turbine. So, um, yeah, there are lots of things you can do, um, but planning, planning it to put in the right place is critical.
0: I've got a question here that uh, seems slightly leading, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. Does the RSPB offer an advisory service for landowners interested in <laughs> renewables projects?
3: <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Um, so we, we set up um, a business conservation advice unit in, in about 2009. And, and as I mentioned, um, we've got a partnership with uh, a fantastic solar developer who, who, who deliver really um, good levels of biodiversity net gain on their projects. And well, that's what we're aiming to do with them. And uh, yeah, we've got about 20 people in that team. James,
0: so we've heard that the opportunity, the time could very well be now. We've heard that you know, that wildlife is, 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 is not the issue that some might like us to
1: think it is. How long does the current planning process take? Good question. Um, I think at the end of the day, the fact that we haven't seen much onshore wind applications in recent years, there's nothing really to, to benchmark it against. I think all I could say is um, for an application of this scale, uh, the statutory period being the majority of onshore wind projects would be subject to environmental impact assessment. The statutory determination period would be at least 16 weeks. But realistically, it would be longer than that. Uh, I think everyone in the room and who's listening probably had experience of <laughs> local planning <laughs> authorities and uh, their resources at the moment and how long things take to get through planning. That said, to try and mitigate the the risk of a protracted determination, we'd always strongly advise a thorough pre-application process, engagement with statutory consultees uh, and non-statutory consultees, and, and making sure that you've, you've tried to iron out as many of the technical issues and constraints to the development as you can from the outset before you even get close to submitting the application. Hence, going back to Chris's point, why it could take realistically three to five years to get yourself ready for an application, because by the time you've done all your, your data collection and designed the proposal and navigated through that pre-app process you're probably looking at that sort of timescale but that's money and time well spent because then hopefully that allows more of a fast-track determination and sorry just to finish yesterday you might have heard in the autumn statement the Chancellor's uh, committing to uh, if you don't get your application determined quickly you'll get your money back so you can see government are, are really starting to intervene and try and encourage local authorities and target local authorities to perform much better than they have done recently and get planning decisions yeah. through quickly. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's going to be quite the incentive, I think.
0: So, you've, you've, we've, hearing all we've heard, and if there's a landowner listening or in the audience today who says, you know what,
1: I'm going to go for it, where do they start? Well, I think the first critical issue is um, grid capacity, and, and Chris can obviously talk about that in a bit more detail. But um, if you haven't got the grid capacity in, in proximity to your site, then the, the project's not going to fly, it's not, it's not going to be viable. But once, once you've gone through that due diligence and got to a point where you, you, you acknowledge you've got a grid connection and there's capacity to take the development, It's then looking into what are the planning opportunities and constraints for the site and doing an initial feasibility from a planning perspective, looking at some of the the, the technical issues, the environmental issues and what the the potential effects of the scheme could be, how they could be avoided, how they could be mitigated, to really give, hopefully, a a high-level picture of the the prospects of success uh, and the the key things you've got to focus on in preparing a future planning application. That's really interesting.
0: So, Chris, no time like the present to come to you on that one then. Um, can you talk grid capacity uh, before we come on to sort of discuss how, how how rewarding this might be for Orlando, but can you just address the grid
2: capacity point for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think anyone listening or in this room who's had any experience with renewables will know that grid connections are an absolute nightmare to deal with. Um, I would, however, say there, there are probably three main points I'd want to make on grid connections to suggest why it might not be... A definite killer if you've had a bad experience in the past. Um, So firstly I'd say previous experience doesn't necessarily equate to current experience. The grid is a very fluid process. As new connections are made, as new developments are plugged in, the grid often have to divert power in different routes. That changes the way their infrastructure works and can, in the process, unlock little pockets of capacity that wasn't previously available. So I've known quite a few projects where we may have done a good application two years ago and been told there's absolutely no capacity, it's not viable, but actually done a new application a couple of years after that and found that actually suddenly some capacity has opened up and we can then get a successful project. I'd say if you've got a negative application there's no point putting a new one in the following day, you're going to get the same result, but if it's been a year or two since then that doesn't necessarily mean you won't get connection with a new application. Um, But that's not guaranteed by any standards. Um, The second point I'd make is that um, the different types of technology that you're trying to connect into the grid have very different profiles in the way that they they interact with the grid. So if we apply for a solar farm grid connection, the grid will look at that and naturally will assume it's going to have peak output in the middle of the day. Morning, it's going to ramp up. Afternoon, it's going to slowly trickle away, and there's not going to be any output during the during the night time. A wind farm, on the other hand, is going to be totally different. It's going to produce power whenever the wind blows. That could be a lot of power through the night. Whereas solar farm would have been rejected a grid connection because, say, there's too many solar farms in the grid, and that midday peak is completely filling the grid. You can't put another solar farm in there. You might still be able to put a wind farm in. You might have to have a discussion with the grid about maybe you might need to switch the turbines off for one hour in the middle of the day when all the solar farms are maxing their output. But that might be a small price to pay for the benefit of getting a wind farm grid connection, getting that built. There are still enough hours in the day to make make your money back. Um, The third thing I'd mention is that the grid are, to their credit, doing a huge amount of work trying to create capacity. Um, I do sort of sympathise that they are dealing with a you know, 100-year-old grid network that was built to almost like a spider's web with a central power station distributing power outwards. And renewables are just completely breaking the system. We're trying to feed power in the wrong direction from all kinds of different locations using the grid in a way it was never made to be used. So I do sympathise that the, the grid are sort of struggling to keep up at doing the best they can with what they've got. But the infrastructure is just pretty old and knackered. Um, One thing that in the Chancellor's recent autumn statement, there was some talk about more money, more funding going into grid to help with upgrades. But in the process, they've got all kinds of plans of how they're going to start freeing up more capacity. Um, One key one, which was a recent announcement, was about what so-called zombie grid connections. Um, So this is an issue where once you've made a grid application and you've secured that capacity in your name, the grid will reserve that capacity to you and won't offer that to anyone else. That's all good if you're actually gonna build that project, but if you as a developer go bankrupt or fail at your planning application or fall out with the landowner, for whatever reason, if you decide you're not gonna build that, that is now a dead project, but if you don't tell the grid, they're still holding that capacity in your name, reserving it from anyone else. And that's quite a legacy issue of loads of capacity being held up to potentially dead projects. And a recent announcement is that they're going to work through the process of culling all of those types of connections and starting to put milestones on viable projects to speak to developers and say, you need to submit your planning application by this date. If you haven't achieved that, we'll class you as a dead project and we'll take you off the grid, give that to someone who will build it. And I think that presents another great opportunity of more capacity being freed up into the grid but also putting pressure on viable projects. I know too many landowners, unfortunately, who did sign up with a developer, but are now just sat on a project that the developers put on the back burner they're not really pressured about at the moment. Well, actually, this can be quite a useful way of the grid, saying, here's a deadline, you now need to get your planning application in. If landowners have been banging their heads against a brick wall, maybe the grid can help that argument and inspire a bit of movement from them. So. Yeah, grid is still going to be a challenge. It's, I'm never going to say it's going to be an easy process, but there are enough, enough processes in place that a bad experience historically doesn't necessarily equate to a, a bad experience today.
0: I'm just trying to struggle the the, uh, the image of a zombie, zombie wind farm from my mind. Zombie wind farms <laughs> ate my Um so just this, this isn't on our list, so I feel slightly cheeky bringing it up, but batteries... Um, I know that uh, a member of my family has got his uh, solar panels. their solar panels connected to a battery and battery technology is coming on in leaps and bounds. Do you know anything about the connection of onshore wind to a, to a battery system
2: for storage and then use? Absolutely. Um, the vast majority of batteries that are getting built today at commercial scale are what are generally referred to as kind of standalone batteries. They're just plugged into the grid, not associated with a wind farm or a solar farm. and There are countless complicated ways that they can make money, but it's all about taking power in in and out of the grid, matching supply and demand. But it often doesn't work as you might think. They don't just charge up once, discharge once. They're often switching on and off every second or even half second, just trying to keep the balance of power just above consumption. So we're, we're never in a position of having a blackout, but we're never wasting power in the grid that's not being consumed. And they're often doing this power balancing of keeping the lights on. Um, so the concept of batteries tied to a solar farm or a wind farm is a little bit harder to be financially stable because if they're only doing charging while the wind farms blow, while the wind's blowing and then discharging when it stops, they may only have one cycle of those batteries per day compared to the standalone that could have 15 cycles per day. Um, so the revenues are harder to make work and it really comes down to the cost of the batteries. So I know a lot of developers who are designing schemes and getting planning applications to co-locate batteries with solar or wind, but aren't necessarily going to build them straight away because the batteries are too expensive. But they can see as the cost of batteries are coming down, the viability of that comes up. And so that's definitely going to be a a technology that we'll be seeing far more commonly in the future. It's rare-ish at the moment, but going to be far more common as we go forward. Right. Um, come on to isabel now you mentioned uh
0: the nature crisis yes. so how can the renewable sector kind of aid that and how can people sort of embracing renewables on their land help uh r- r- nature to recover
3: oh well thank you um thanks mike and also i realized i forgot to properly introduce myself before <laughs> so i should just say um i'm i uh i'm the rspb's energy policy lead um Working on kind of casework, um, uh, while well, supporting our casework, um, and also policy, kind of pushing for net, net zero and nature-positive renewables. So I think, um, yes, the nature (coughs) crisis is is really, really critical. We've got these nature recovery targets. Nature is in an almost terminal decline in this country. And if we do not reverse it, we will lose a lot of those really important species that are also really important for making us resilient to climate change. So we... um, Because our our climate change is about ecosystem damage and um, those ecosystems are what support our agriculture, what support us to live um, ultimately. So um, I think it is really, really important that renewables are built in as nature-positive a way as possible. Um, So as I said, it is about site selection partly, um, but it's also about land management. You can kind of create habitat, use, so with solar panels, you have an enormous opportunity Um, uh, to to kind of create habitat and uh, to support biodiversity on those sites, as we know from our work on solar. Um, Onshore wind in England has obviously, you know, it's not been built for for some years at any scale. Um, So um, I think it will be quite interesting to see what happens with biodiversity net gain in England um, around onshore wind um and um i think in terms of kind of it's it comes back to that mitigation hierarchy for onshore winds you really kind of do need to start by choosing the right sites um, and kind of micro siting as well so kind of taking that approach of um looking at within the site where is best what areas of that site might birds be using more and bats as well um, and then kind of planning the site around that and i also think you know that's also likely to to help with local community opposition as well because um, you kind of it it's often nature is often one of the reasons cited for for community opposition and um, so if you kind of mitigate and put and and put measures in place uh to protect wildlife from renewables um, then uh, you're much more likely probably i think to to have less community opposition um, so yeah.
0: So how does one if, if you're planning a project how can one engage with uh, the RSPB at mm. the earliest point to make sure that that, that runs as smoothly as possible
3: um, well we would encourage you to engage us uh, developers to engage us right from the right from the start of the process um, you can we've got uh, we've got local area teams who kind of manage all of that and then uh, we've got kind of our um, experts so they're kind of our local experts and then we've got kind of our Um, national experts who who they can talk to for for advice on on how to uh, look at a site. But it's often our local teams with the best knowledge. Um, Mm -hmm. So we would kind of encourage people to engage us right from from the start. Uh, We really welcome that. And we always welcome speaking to industry, um, always, because we think that industry has a critical role to play in, in solving the nature and climate crises.
0: So how's the, Do they just like, go to the RSPB website and find the local team? How do they? How, yeah. How, how, right. OK.
3: Yep. Yeah. OK, you there that. you go. That was easy.
0: <laughs> um, right, Chris. So, you, do, so, you know, uh, just, sorry, just just to segue back to, to Isabel for a second. I just think it's really, really interesting that we seem to be realising that as a society... Uh, particularly in the West we were not as clever as we thought we were because we we're having to rediscover all the things we we'd, we'd forgotten about uh, how to manage nature work with nature how to work with the elements um, and, and and so and so on and so Chris you're in your field and uh, a nice gentleman comes to uh, have you considered sir a uh, a lovely wind turbine an onshore wind project on your land what do you do what's your next what's your, what what should you do faced with with an offer from a from a developer
2: yeah well i'd I mean, I'm going to say this, but the first thing would be to seek professional advice. Um, But the reason being that you need to understand if that's the right technology, the right development for that piece of land, and that it fits with that business. So I have plenty of discussions with people who have got letters through the door, had developers knocking, and we've gone and sat, sat around the table, talked about it, and worked out that actually their farm business is structured in such a way that this technology doesn't work for them, or that their family structure or something else is, is interfered or they've got other development plans that this would interfere with. Um, so I'd always be cautious about just diving headfirst into any of these projects without first considering the wider impacts. And as we talked about earlier with different technologies and you know, e- ecological issues, just because a developer saying they'll want to give this a go doesn't mean that that's the best solution for that piece of land. So we could then talk about whether there's a you know, better prospect for doing a solar farm or a battery storage project or something else that's the most appropriate technology but then spinning off that if we get to the point where we concluded that yes this is the right thing to do then it's a conversation of we can go to the market speak to other developers I'd be cautious about going with the first developer who knocks on the door just because they're the first doesn't mean they're ne- necessarily the best so it's worth speaking to the broader market getting an understanding of what the rental terms are whether what you're being offered is competitive but also looking at the business models of the companies There's a huge range of developers out there, everything from household name energy companies who have huge reputations, huge resources, but can also be quite slow and bureaucratic because of their size, but they're relatively stable. You can't imagine they're going to go bankrupt anytime soon. They should be fairly stable at getting it built, but you've also got much smaller outfits of companies with just a handful of members of staff, very few projects, much higher risk, but... If those couple of staff members are also the shareholders and it's their personal funds behind it, they're going to work the extra hours to get this through. They're going to burn the midnight oil because they don't get paid if they don't build it. And different clients and different relationships bring those different developers together. I often work with country estates where you've got trustees that you're reporting to, and in that case, the big stable firms are often preferred because then it's a justifiable decision to go with the managing risk. But other times, private farmers quite often like a bit of, risk with someone who they know they can pick up the phone to. And that's you know the chairman of the company who will have an answer for every question they've got. So there's a lot of that to go through and finding the right developer. All of that should happen before you make the decision of which developer it is you want to work with. And then sp- from that, it then spins on to what James was talking about for then starting to do planning assessments and what I- Isabel's talking about for looking then at where you would be citing the development around any ecologically sensitive areas. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a complicated conversation, but yeah. the sooner you start that conversation, the, the more comfortable you are with the decisions you made. Right, we'll, we'll come on
0: to questions from the floor in a minute, but I just want to talk filthy Luca for a second. And how, uh, if anyone's listening with small children, you might want to get them to leave the room, how financially rewarding can it be to have uh,
2: uh, an onshore wind development on your land? A uh, simple answer is very. <laughs> if, if there wasn't money, if there wasn't money in it, then it, you wouldn't build a wind farm. Developers are doing it because they want to make profits, and naturally, landowners are not going to sign up to these deals unless there's a good enough revenue for it. Um, the revenues are exciting, but they can also attract a lot of tax as well. So that can also be a big element of before you get to the point of signing legally binding contracts to Cash then get the, the right experts in. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but ultimately, the, the reason you do it is for the financial rewards. And now's a good time to be talking about it, especially with loss of BPS and everything else. This can be a very good solution they're to bring finance... Uh, sorry, BPS, Basic Payment Scheme, so subsidy regimes and financial support for farmers. If they're losing finance on one side, renewables can be a great solution of getting more finance in from a different angle. Absolutely. Right.
0: Upon that note, ladies and gentlemen, can I before we come to questions, can I a- ask you to... Uh, Express your gratitude to the panel in the traditional manner. Thank you. So, right, what I'm going to do now is jump up and... turn this around, just so that we don't miss anything from the floor. I'm going to get this... Does anybody anybody, have a question for the panel? Yes, sorry, I'll come to you in a second. Hang on, I'll just turn this on so we, we can make sure that we get everything. I'm pushing the wrong button, which is why it's not, nothing's happening. There you go, it's coming on now. So, what's your name?
4: Mine's John Moore.
0: And you're from N2C Services. <laughs> NZC. NZC, I'm so sorry. It's too, I'm, I'm trying At uh, Net there you go. Um,
4: yes, so, I mean, if we go back 10 years when we were all busily rushing around the countryside finding sites, a lot of work was done to find and pre screen sites that are still there. They haven't got anywhere, the wind hasn't changed. The, generally speaking, the nature. Situation hasn't changed and radar is still where it was. Um, is, is it worth people who maybe had their hopes dashed against the rocks of Pickles' planning policies? Is it worth them trying again now?
0: Oh, I like the sound it. sounds like we should come in a jar. Pickles' finest planning policies. <laughs> <laughs> Panel, H- who's going to lead with that?
1: James? I think from a planning point of view, definitely. I think um, there, there's a wealth of sites that have been stifled by the previous regime. I think we're, we're seeing some real positive shifts in government policy, but those that I mentioned earlier are still very limited. I think what we see over the next 12 to 24 months coming out of government will be key to the success of those applications coming forward again. Um, I think the signs are very positive and onshore wind has a big contribution to make to the country achieving net zero targets. So um, in short, yes and obviously there's already a wealth of information about those sites that gets you further along the process we've described much quicker. He's
0: finished typing.
5: Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, it's a, it's a your name, your name sorry, please. Yes. Uh, Sam Reed from Opportunity Net Zero. Right. Um, it's a question to James and Isabel, because um, it kind of covers the environmental impact assessment and sort of nature. Do you feel that the environmental evalu- evaluation of, sort of natural capital is good enough at the moment, and do you think it needs to maybe improve in terms of valuing the assets? Because for example in, in a project that we recently did apparently some of the water uh, assets were valued a uh, hundred times less valuable to not do the development which was um i can't remember what it was exactly but uh like it was more valuable to do the project despite the damages rather than not do it and leave it as it is so basically do you think it's a good enough standard with the environmental impact assessments or should they be like valuing nature higher because of its future sort of potential value and just greater good in terms of saving species
0: and um, the planet generally really. Well that sounds like a good reason to do anything but Isabel do you want to do you want to lead with that? And, um...
3: Yeah I'll start I'll, I'll, I'll be honest I'm not um, I'm not a planning expert and I'm not a, a natural capital valuation expert um, but I can say that we um, we we like the, the the EIA system as it is we don't want to see it scrapped and, and replaced with something else uh, which, is, which is what the government uh, is proposing to do, um, and um, we, we do see issues with the way it's implemented, but a lot of those we think are around process and around resourcing within local authorities. Um, so yeah, I think we kind of we'd like the current system to say, stay as it is, but be implemented much better. Um, yeah, and I think James is probably more the expert on uh, valuing natu- natural capital than I am.
1: Yeah, I'd say. Um, The EIA process currently isn't broken, and I I would agree with Isabel that some of the the government's proposals to dilute the current EIA process are are concerning. Um, I think with any planning application, though, you'll have a robust EIA process that will have technically evaluated the significance of all the environmental effects. It's probably a lack of skill and expertise within local authorities to take that environmental information and and make the appropriate judgments. because at the end of the day a planning decision is a balance of all of those aspects, not just the ecological but the economic, the social. It's a balance of all of that and sometimes the decision making process isn't as transparent in how they've arrived at that balance, hence why EIA is often a soft target for judicial review because the procedural undertaking of that balancing exercise and how they've arrived at that decision isn't always as robust as it should be. Christopher, a follow-up on that? Yeah, I was probably going to say that
2: it almost links back to what I was saying about picking the right developer, because I think a large part of that would come down to the developer and their planners to make the case to the planning authority. So it's, it's all well and good if, if it is the case that we can say, actually, this is a better project for the environment. But if you're not selling that case and not showing that to the planners and not showing it to the community, you're not going not to persuade them. It, it, it's not an ecological issue, but it does spring to mind a project of a solar farm I was dealing with in uh, the north of England. While we were doing our surveys for our planning application, we discovered a medieval village hitherto unknown in the middle of this, this land. And we engaged with the council and started talking about what do we do with this. And the conclusion came to it that through the development process, we can put loads of funding into doing an archaeological dig, doing loads of research and learning about this this village that no one knew existed. And we actually got planning consent then to build a solar farm on top of it with foundations that wouldn't intrude on the the village because that would safeguard the village for the next 40 years. We'd learn about it in the process and it would stop the farmer going through with his plough every year, smashing it to pieces. So we're able to make the case and successfully get the councils on support to build this project because of that argument but i don't think we could have done it without the right engagement without the right people speaking to the council and bringing them on to site having those conversations That's i mean engagement is such a key word because
0: in get that engagement it needn't be an oppositional slog i mean it, it, you've given a really great example there of where a community has sort of come together to sort of embrace what renewables can deliver for them and through that engagement, every, a, a real win-win's crafted. And I think that's what we should all aim for. Any more questions? Ah, yes, thank you, sir.
6: Hi there, um, I was just wondering- in the... Did you introduce yourself, oh, sorry. sorry. John Coates from Bidwells.
0: Well, Listeners of right. the future now know who you are.
6: Thanks, great. Um, when uh, this hypothetical developer comes to the landowner and says, I think uh, this is a good site for, for a wind farm,
2: how much due diligence have they are they generally done? Have they, or are they just looking at whether well, wind blows enough of the time or are they, have they already looked at some of, these, some of these factors that they're going to have to look, look at further down the line? Thank you. I'd, I'd say the, the honest answer to that is it, it, it depends on the developer. There, there are going to be plenty of examples of developers who have simply done some basic research of there's a substation that we think could have grid capacity. We'll just write letters to everyone within a five kilometer radius you,
1: community.
2: Uh, <laughs> exactly um, and in those cases yes they've done no research and it's very much a case of the net wide seeing what they catch and then doing the research post hoc um, but there are other developers who do do all that research and are very specific and very targeted so um, there is no one-size-fits-all but that is a key point to consider if if you're in receipt of a letter from a de- developer that says we think your site's suitable for a project. That does not necessarily mean that your site's suitable for a project because it could just be this cast and let net wide. But it's worth using that to inspire the conversation to then get the likes of, of James and Isabel to be able to look at, is this actually going to be successful? Do we want to put resource into it or do we want to walk away because we know it's just going to be a liability? Thank
0: you. Any? No, no, they're, look, they're looking quite satisfied with that answer. Well, nice one, Chris. Anybody else? Come on, you know you've got one. Go on, thank you, sir. And you are? uh... Uh, Christopher Bond, another Bidwells question. Oh, good, they're they're, they're really stepping up your
6: colleagues. (laughs) Two points to it, really. Firstly, you talk about the public perception of onshore wind turbines. When they were offered, was it 10 years ago now, uh, farmers were completely blackballed if they went near it. There was some very very tragic cases actually about it all. you have just excommunicated from the villages completely. Um, at the moment, I'm dealing with the Norwich to Tilbury, East Anglian Green Line, but I've never seen so much opposition as there is to that. So how are you going to overcome that with your planning applications? And my second question was, I'm assuming that it's vastly more profitable to build an onshore turbine than an offshore turbine, and therefore the developer can pay rather more for the right to do so. Right, I'm going to get Chris to come back on on, on that that
0: last point yeah. first, and then we're going to jump to James for the because this is this is quite interesting because I I know the area that, that particularly Norfolk um, that you're talking about with that with and the opposition. I mean, thankfully, I've, I've, I don't work in that field anymore, but. It, it, it can be as you say very fierce and I've seen those I've sort of seen those excommunications that blackballing, as you call it it's uh, it, it can be really difficult for incredibly difficult for farmers who are just trying to make their business profitable they are businesses at the end of the day Chris sorry you had to take a zip I leapt in there before you could do that
2: yeah on, on the question about the of the, the financial returns for wind farms um I must say, it's a bit of a dark art that developers are not going to tell you how much profits they're making on an onshore and offshore wind farm. But from my layman's understanding, I think they probably are still more profitable offshore on the basis that there is near infinite land, essentially offshore for them to be able to build the turbines without the complexities of having to go through the land rights of many different farmers and landowners and then many different people to get cables. Essentially they just go through the government and through the crown estate to get the cable onto to make landfall but it's not quite It's easier for them to build a really big project so scale kicks in once they're building massive projects then the profit margins can you know, scale appropriately um, And offshore wind speeds are a lot higher because you don't get you know, the land in the way to stop the wind speeds and at planning you don't have a local community because you don't have people who can see it. And you might get some objection from some fishermen, but it's, it's not to the same extent as you do from local villages. So I think for numerous reasons, offshore wind is still something that developers love because it is cheap to build and it is profitable. But they are facing challenges because they can only build the turbines in shallow waters. And off the east coast, we've got loads of shallow waters You go west, you get faster wind speeds, but deeper waters where you can't build turbines. I know there are trials going on for floating wind farms, but that technology is still in sort of trial and testing phase rather than large-scale rollout. So onshore is still a very genuine solution that is still profitable for developers and fits a niche. It's certainly not going to be the the solution to solve all of the UK's energy problems, but does fit a niche that, that other technologies can't fill. Um one thing I'd probably touch on with that is that since 2015, when the ban came through, the manufacturers of turbines have all designed their wind farms for offshore use. So most of the turbines you see on the landscape today might be 75 metres to the top of the tip of the blades. But if you go to the market, if you phoned up one of the manufacturers and asked for their brochure of all the turbines they produce, probably the smallest you can get is 150 metres more commonly about 200 meters tall. Trying to build those onshore is gonna be difficult because they're gonna be absolutely massive, but at the same time, they're so huge, they're so efficient, one of these massive turbines can produce near enough the same amount of power as a whole wind farm that we built in 2010. So the economics are constantly evolving. They're totally different to what we're used to from the the subsidy era, from the pre-2015 era, the profits are still you know, good enough for developers to be to be active, but we're probably going to be in a different landscape. Rather than seeing a wind farm of twenty turbines across a hillside, we might just see one or two producing the same amount of power, but they're twice the size turbines. Isabel, you've you've been sort of looking keenly at that. Right? I have something to <laughs> say on this point. No, no, please. It's
3: just really, really interesting. Um, yeah, I just uh, I suppose I'd like to add a couple of things. So, uh, just some really interesting points made there. Um, I think, so my understanding is that whilst there are a lot of complexities politically, a lot more complexities politically to building onshore, actually in terms of the engineering, building onshore is cheaper um, uh, than it is to build to build uh, offshore turbines. And, and it, just in terms of talking about the change in the size of turbines, it's really, really interesting from an ecological perspective because the first wind farms, onshore wind farms, are now starting to kind of come to the end of their life. So... Um, they have a lifespan of about 20, 25 years. Um, so, what we're seeing now is applications to do what's called repowering, where you uh, kind of rebuild that site. Um, and that means that you replace the turbines and you also have to replace the um, foundations of the turbines because you're building now much, much higher. Um, as Chris was saying, uh, the, the turbines now are much, much bigger. But what that means is often, so we've seen it in Scotland uh, quite a lot, um, is that the, the, the kind of dynamics of the sites are, are changing. So, you know, you're seeing the same capacity overall in terms of the amount of energy that it produces. But for the repowered site, there'll be a significant cut in the number of turbines because they're much bigger. Um, and, it, and it's interesting from an ecological perspective because that affects different species, different species fly at different heights um and so on so um yeah it's it's just it's just really really interesting um yeah
2: do you mind me asking from the rspb's perspective what what's more attractive lots of smaller turbines or a fewer larger is is there a preference
3: i don't think so i think i don't i think we couldn't give like a really um comprehensive clear answer to that question because it is so site specific it would really depend um on 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 the site itself kind of what what species are located in that area um, because some you know raptors for instance tend to fly at a higher uh, at a higher level and they are off because they're bigger birds they're often more um, clunkier kind of birds clumsier kind of birds, and they're perhaps more vulnerable to being hit by t- turbines um, but um, but it, it, it you know then if 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 it's higher up, then kind of smaller farmland birds might not be so affected. So it's it, it kind of varies a lot, I think, depending on the site. Yeah. I just wanted to jump on the
5: question a little bit, not to edge onto the panel anyway. But, but uh, Sam Reed from Optus again, Optus Net Zero. Um, we're also working on the Norwich Tilbury line as well. We're working with National Grid around the community sort of engagement and that side of things because that's going to be initiating in January, I believe. And a lot of the work we've been finding is that. A lot of the initial opposition has come through the lack of transparency in the initial phases of it. So, for example, a lot of the local opposition have been asking why wasn't an offshore uh, pipe, uh, not pipeline, sorry, offshore pylon network uh, proposed or offered to, towards them? And it was because of the regulations that nas- uh, yeah, National Grid have to follow. The offshore pylons and things like that were, were extortionately more expensive, so it wasn't even a consideration for them because financially. In terms of a cost-benefit analysis it was not worth it in any way but because that wasn't then relayed over to the public they were left sort of in the dark and not knowing why they're just being told that this is definitely going to happen on land and then the sort of further then benefits of how this is actually going to help because i think a lot of it is a lack of understanding of how offshore wind uh, onshore wind farms going to help and how this like brings energy security it helps then change the balance of our generation across the UK in terms of away from fossil fuels and towards green renewable energy and then that in turn will help save things like our habitats our wildlife because if we don't do this this change which obviously is never is uh, needed because of the whole climate change issue and habitats and global warming and localized effects which people maybe aren't aware of in terms of like temperature rises which then leads to things like either like flooding or like road melting if temperatures continue to rise in different Degree warming scenarios like the 1.5 degree warming. If that's not explained to them, and they don't actually have a slight change of heart, because yes, obviously a, a onshore wind farm is going to be an eyesore, but is it more an eyesore than say your habitats being slowly destroyed over the next 10, 20 years because temperatures continue to rise because we don't transition quick enough because we're already behind sort of the curve because of the delays we've had over the last 30 years. So we kind of need to make sure that we explain the positives and how they can be supported and how the funding and like different community benefits can be explained and used better to really help them in the short and long term but then also in the greater good and sort of greater outlook actually help this planet make sure that we actually survive and you know protect all of us not just species but also ourselves in the global warming and make sure that our communities are there for future generations so It's sort of making sure that we have transparency around the processes and how this is going to help and how even though there are minor setbacks now or maybe an eyesore being an onshore turbine but it provides them energy security it provides them cheaper bills this funding that this project will bring will bring you a new community say village hall or we can implement new windows roads all kinds of different things that would help support them in the short and long term so sort of transparency and communication along the whole process with the Local community would be like really
0: important. Basically. I think that is an excellent point, and I I was recently um, speaking. Eastern Promise did a uh, an event in at Jesus College in Cambridge, looking at the decarbonisation of heritage and historic buildings, and uh, James will, will know all about this, and I'm sure the whole panel will, but uh, in, James in particular, because there, there is that tussle between. We don't want solar panels or a wind turbine on our beautiful historic building or our beautiful farmland. But if the land is so wet, because, you know, we're going to run out of names for storms soon. We, 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 we're on to the names that even the BBC weather uh, weather can't pronounce. So, st- storm... Um, we're going to run out of names for storms. But if nobody can go and enjoy the landscape, because it's yeah. raining too much, if nobody can go and look at the buildings because, you know, the, the, it's, it's too, too damp or it's too dry or the... You know, then what's the point? We, we we need to we need to actually address the energy usage quickly. Um, James, you, there's there's been a lot about the the engagement uh, factor, and that must be. I'm sure you've done your fair share of public meetings, <laughs> where where you, you 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 may as well have come with a scythe, a cloak, and a mask, uh, and and uh, said, ha ha ha, uh, and put the giant the I've I've been at many of those. Put the giant bags of money on the table first, and you know. Um, what is what is the secret to that really good engagement piece? Because I have seen it done across the country on, on all sorts of planning projects, housing, uh, renewables, where the community kind of gets surprised by oh, this actually might be rather nice, or this might actually work for us really, really well. And the the kind of ones who are sort of determined to d- dine a ditch opposing it kind of get shunted to the, the sidelines. What's the secret? Tell us the secret
1: source from Bidwell's. Yeah, well, I think. In in terms of those sort of uh, consultation events, often you get the the vocal minority that come out and, um, shall we say, vent at you. Um, The silent majority who are sitting back saying, well actually I think this is pretty okay, I'm I'm quite happy with it, you never really get to see at these events. So it's how you engage with those, and I think the transparency point, being honest, is key. I think being very early in the process is also key. I think Too often you go to these events and you can see people walk in all fired up, ready to go. And you almost just got to let them vent and and let them wear themselves out and actually just then give them the facts. And by the time you've left them that day, they've actually turned around because they said, "Oh, I didn't realise that. They have the misperception of what the scheme is actually about. They don't understand what the benefits are. They don't understand why you're doing what you're doing and what you've considered in reaching that conclusion. So I think honesty, transparency and explaining it to them thoroughly. Yeah, okay. You're never going to please everybody, though. That's the reality.
0: And, and, and the thing of it is, there's always disruption in the construction phase, but that disruption will cease. Yes, it'll be a pain in the neck for a bit, but the disruption will end and there'll be something really great yeah. for everyone to enjoy at the end of it. And as, as Sam says, keep the, keeps, the, uh, keeps the, the, the climate change wolf from the door. Isabel, you, you again, you seem very patiently, <laughs> like You've me the uh, I want to say something look.
3: I was just going to jump in and say that I think... So I, I, I haven't had time to fully digest yesterday's announcements when it comes to uh, energy policy uh, in the autumn statement because uh, there was a lot um, that was published yesterday and mentioned um, in the Chancellor's speech. Um, but... Uh, and, and I think we probably have... We're probably not happy with all of it, but there was one thing that came out uh, in their transmission action plan uh, that I, I thought was quite interesting, which is that the government is committing in principle to delivering a, a, a public communications um, campaign around the need for a grid upgrade. Um, and I, I think that, that that should be really, really interesting. I mean, let's wait and see, see what happens um, because they've only committed to it in principle so far. Um, so we don't know what it's going to look like. But um, yeah, I think there is a big public communications piece to be done around the importance... Um, of this energy transition and what it means for communities, James. Any changes
0: that aren't in—I'm going to get slightly nerdy and technical here—regulations uh, to regulations or, or secondary legislation, ones that require primary legislation—is
1: is that likely to happen now? Before, yeah. Well, the, the Leveling Up and Regeneration Act is the, the principal primary piece of legislation from which now the regulation will follow. So I think the fact that that's now actually got through and is enacted is, is a real step forward. We've, as I said earlier, we've waited a long while for that. I think going back to the comms <coughs> point, I think the government have recently consulted on, on proposals where if a local area supports onshore wind, that they will be incentivised and they, they will potentially get discounts on their electric bills, et cetera. So, we're still waiting to see what government's response to that consultation is, but that's that's anytime soon. And I think that that's a direction to travel, that government acknowledge that community support is important in these projects, but it's not always possible to get overwhelming community support. So you need to balance it against all the other issues, UK energy security, cheaper energy bills. And if you... It sounds wrong, but if you can buy a community support by saying, well, actually, you'll get some direct benefit from this onshore wind proposal by virtue of you getting cheaper bills and you getting the community infrastructure that has been spoken about today. I think you'll start to see a a turn towards actually people thinking, well, we know we've got to do this. OK, I might not want it in my backyard, but I can see the benefits of, of doing it.
0: I think that's important because if they feel like the energy is just flowing past their community and they're getting no benefit from it, what, what's the incentive in them f- for them to to uh, support it? Lots of nods in the room. Anyone want to expand on that? I mean, I'll, I'll
6: just oh, chip, chip hang in. on, hang on. Uh, hi there, I'm Paul Armfield from the RSPB. I'm just going to chip in and kind of endorse everything that you guys have been saying because I do work on the engagement side of it and work with a lot of. Um, local communities and what seems to work is common sense. and I think a lot of the time when business bids have been put in, common sense doesn't necessarily prevail to the broader community. So if you can articulate common sense points about well what's in it for you, what's in it for the landscape, what's in it for the business and then tie that back to the norm, it does tend to work. That's an ex- excellent point. I mean, you, you, the, the engagement piece can often, is often, as,
0: as James knows very well, can often be really, really choppy. You, you wanted to say something, and you are...
4: Michael Turner from ECN. Or just Engineering
0: Construction uh, Network, it says, yeah, there.
4: A question for, for, for James. I, when I read the levelling up um, legislation, it seemed to me they were suggesting that the local planning authorities ought to be allocating areas... For renewables within within the local plan I appreciate that'll take time do you think that's something they'll be thinking about and moving on
1: with w- which would help everybody in reality yeah certainly um, the changes to the MPPF that came in in September also advocates that local authorities need to be putting forward what they call positive strategies for the delivery of renewables including onshore wind but back 10 years ago you'd only get a scheme to get any progress if it had an allocation in a local plan. I think we've moved beyond that, that yes, allocations in local plans will be important, but there's many other sites that come forward in that timeframe that would equally be suitable. Because part of the criticism of why there hasn't been the delivery of onshore wind is because planning policy takes so long and local plans take so long to come forward. So I think the government intervention with um, high-level national policy that's got more teeth to direct, almost, local authorities to say, Thou shall approve an application for onshore wind if it's deemed to be acceptable or can be made acceptable. I think that's a real step forward. You're not just relying on getting an allocation in a plan. As long as you're technically robust in terms of where your site is and you've mitigated the environmental issues as much as you can, if it's deemed acceptable, it should be granted planning consent. I think just, just to come back to Paul's point from the RSPB,
0: um, I, I think a lot of the issues around objection are often lodged in fear. Um, and the the only surefire antidote to fear is information, is knowledge. Um, you might not like what you learn, and you might not, but you, you can come to that judgment as as as, as both Chris and Isabel um, alluded to that judgment of on balance, it is what's best for me, best for my family, best for our community. Yes, there's going to be some inconvenience, and yes, there's now going to be a turbine where there wasn't previously one before. But on the whole, it it it's best all round.
1: I think a local plan process is very hard for the local public to engage with as well and the amount of schemes I get involved in where there's been an allocation in a development plan for many years but you come in with an application and a local community say oh where's this come from it's like well it's been allocated for ten years but they, they don't engage and I think that's a criticism of the local plan process it is it can be so technical and so procedural it's very hard for the for the layperson to engage with. It's not until the application comes through the door that they they all go up in arms and start to to think, "Well, how do I object?" Because that, like you say, it's the fair factor. So their default is objection before they've really understood what the issues are.
4: the regional planning authorities to come back make it all a bit simpler. Yeah.
0: Well, of course, in Cambridge, they've got the uh, the Greater Cambridge planning service now in, in cambridgeshire and um that's uh, i i couldn't comment on you'd have to ask someone from cambridgeshire if that's a, a, an improvement or not but uh it seems instinctively better to kind of have one bigger team with access to more resources but uh, paul you had your hand up and i will now race down the aisle to you well, it
6: was just a final point to what we were discussing it's um what the issue really is is it's about change isn't it it's people just coming the change, to, it, it's and coming to terms with what change is and it doesn't necessarily mean that change is for the bad it could be for the good but you have just got to go through that education process which Isabel, what you were saying earlier on about that government making the, um, the communications plan about renewables, I think is a critical part of that understanding. So that was great to hear. It's the first time I've heard of it. That's great. And,
0: and just to those of you in the planning sphere with longer memories, uh, who, who, who here remembers the joint call strategy? For, there's a smile, there's a smile and a nod. And I remember in my days working for a, one of the local MPs being at the, the uh, inquiry at the uh, King Centre in, uh, in Norwich, and the local people, to, to James's point, were almost solely absent, except for like one day when this one project came before the inquiry, and that was the Long Bypass. And and uh, it's it's really striking that most of the time it's the local authorities, the planning uh, consultants, and you know the, the the specific interests like the RSPB who are there to, to but the local communities are absent. Obviously, mainly because it's during the day and, and, and most people have, have jobs and, and, and various things to go to. Any more questions? Yes. That's like this. We're cooking with gas now.
4: Sorry, us draw more again. Um, slightly connected to the issue of the local benefit, um, one of the things that often comes up in schemes looking at, particularly community schemes, is the issue of can we actually feed some of our generation to local use? And the Local Electricity Bill didn't make it through Parliament. We then had the Energy Act 2023, which is vast and impenetrable. Has anyone looked at that to see if any of the sort of local electricity provisions have have come through, and whether that, some of that might uh, become available to people?
2: Yeah, I, I've, I've looked at it from a slight, somewhat different angle when I've been involved in things like a housing development, and we've looked at can we do co-locate it with renewables and supply that power to the housing. Um, Really frustratingly what we've then faced is difficulties with the competition and markets authority because All domestic customers need to have access to a range of power sources And so if we were to do a private wire from our solar farm or wind farm to those houses We'd have to build a private network around all the all the properties But we would also have to build the public power grid as well And they'd all have the option of buying power from us or power from the grid And you can understand the rationale behind it, but it then means that the funders behind a solar farm or a renewable project are then nervous because they've plugged into a finite number of customers, all of whom have the freedom to go to another supplier at any time. And so are you going to put your X millions of pounds into this project in the knowledge that your customers could walk away at any moment? And if you'd start losing one customer, the others have to pick up the slack on the bill, and then you start losing two, three, four, you could lose all your customers very quickly. So private wire schemes are quite common where you've got things like a massive single commercial customer. So if you've got a big industrial estate, you know, big heavy industry who is a sole customer would take all that power, brilliant, you can do a deal with them, sell their power. Maybe if you've got a small handful of different businesses, you can diversify, that can work. But at a domestic scale, I've never found a way to make it work. I would be glad if someone could find a way and I'm looking for solutions, but I've not found one yet. Thank you for it. Sorry, I fully
4: appreciate that that your point, you know, in terms of, of the markets, competitions and, and retail customers. But actually the case that most of these people are looking at would be putting in, say, a wind turbine or a solar farm in conjunction with the heat network, with a heat centre. So it's a commercial customer. It's just that... Running a private wire to a heat centre, which is only a, a only use a proportion of that um, um, electricity, is a very, very expensive way of doing it. So Swaffham Pryor, for example, that's yeah, so what I was they've done. Pry, they've yeah. run a private wire from a solar farm to provide some some power to that heat centre. But it's it's a really stupid thing to do because the wires are already there, um, and actually, in many cases, is actually making the DNO's job more difficult. By, by running the private wire, it actually upsets their network and causes more fault problems and all sorts of things. They'd much rather that energy was going through their network. Um, but but as far as you're aware, nothing, nothing's yet come through, because that's what the local electricity bill was going to unlock.
2: Yeah, I'm intrigued to see the detail in that as to what, what changes it makes to enable it. Um, I'm not familiar with the details of the project you're talking about, but I know of... I know of some projects where, for instance, we've found that the grid have a finite capacity, but we've got enough land or we've got enough planning support to build more than the grid can take. And in those cases, then, this is a very logical option is let's max what we can send into the grid and then any surplus we can sell locally. It is generally more profitable to sell the power locally than it is to sell to the grid. So that's a very logical solution, so long as we can have the customers to take that power and in that scenario, if the power's going into the heat production facility and it's a single customer, then I think that, that's the logic behind it, is it's a single customer. They can write a contract with them, and, and that's bankable. The difficulty is if you've got a community and you want to sell power to everyone in a village, getting the power to them is an expensive process. And yeah, it, it, yeah. in those cases, the, generally, the solution then is things like community fund payments. And it might be that we export all the power to the grid. It will end up in those houses. But then we offset their bills by a thousand pounds a year or something like that.
0: Sorry, Isabel, you, I, I was I was, sort of, I was going to come to you for, uh, for, for 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 final final any final thoughts. Not no, it seemed to come. I, I wanted to look a bit more at Chris, and you sort of leant back very obligingly. But um, any final thoughts from the RSPB on on uh, on what we've been discussing today? Before I just wrap up.
3: No, I I don't, I don't think so. I think it's been a really really interesting conversation, and it's interesting to hear. You know to see the kind of amount of, of consensus that actually we do, we do have to get to net zero, we have to um, support nature's recovery and meet our climate targets at the same time. And just thanks to Bidwells for having me, really. It's been a really interesting conversation.
0: I, I think the one thing that, that I've sort of been aware of, certainly in recent years, is there is absolutely no reason why this cannot be a win-win. None at all. Um, and everyone can benefit wildlife can benefit local communities can benefit business can benefit um, there's I think it's a real lack of imagination to suggest that that cannot be the case and because it, it, it really really can James
1: yeah I think the, the key takeaway for me is that the, the fact that we're starting to really see some real change of the dial in terms of government policy um, and we're starting to really see that in terms of real applications now is the time to start to resurrect those Historic schemes that perhaps once failed now is the time to start looking at the opportunities that lie in new sites. So you are ready, as, as Chris alluded to at the beginning. You are ready once the policy is is clearly in place and supportive of, of onshore wind. You're ready to go and you're ready to take that grid capacity before others take it away from you. That's an
0: excellent, excellent final thought. So just thank you all very much for coming today. I uh, hope you enjoyed the breakfast. Um, it's been... A, it, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a truly excellent uh, session. Could you, again, in the traditional manner, show your appreciation to the panel? <laughs> none, none, of, none of you are dashing off, are you? Because if, if, I'm sure there's people who want to come up and uh, fire a few more specific questions at you. But thank you all for coming. You've been a brilliant audience. Thank you for taking part and enjoy the rest of your day. And beware of zombie turbines. <laughs>
3: thank you very much. <laughs>
0: My thanks to Isabel, Chris and James for their insights, to Jessica Barrett for her support on the day, to the audience for their questions, and to Bidwells for inviting me and Eastern Promise to lead this event. And now, this! What could you possibly get for that special region, county, city or town in your life? Let's see what you hope Father Christmas slips into our collective stocking in 2023's final... Crowd Sorcery Yes, Crowd Sorcery... Although maturity brings with it the realisation that Christmas is all about giving, not receiving, we all remember those letters we penned excitedly to Father Christmas, asking for the latest toy or a games console or a smartphone or... uh, Well, you get the picture. But this time, instead of gadgets and gizmos, I asked you what you wanted Santa to bring for our region, whether whole or in part. You did not disappoint, not proud or haughty, So let's find out who's been nice and who's been naughty. Here we go, ho, ho. Our first name on the nice list is Neil Griffin, business support director, inspiring knowledgeable business support across the UK's leading provider of innovation spaces. Says Neil, easy, Mike. For all the numerous roadworks on the A12 and A14 to be finished, let's hope all my dreams and wishes come true. That's a popular view, Neil, shared by Deborah Dawson from our most excellent and dear friends at Mills and Reeve. Couldn't agree more, Neil Griffin, says Deborah. Traditional, at this time of year, is the chocolate selection box. And another friend of the show, business development strategist, talent acquisition and recruitment expert Adam Peed, has quite the diverse pick, says he. I would like to see more blood donations from those who can donate. This is so important. The improvements to the region's rail connections actually happen. A Terry's Chocolate Orange for everyone. Norwich City Football Club to make the playoffs and get promoted. And some Eastern Promise events. The aforementioned Deborah Dawson supports these. Great comments. Four out of five for me, especially the rail improvements and Terry's chocolate orange. That's a must at Christmas. As is the Eastern Promise podcast. A supersized yet gentle exterior gives way to smooth audio caramel with one complete nut at the centre. As for Eastern Promise events, Adam, watch this space. Plans for 2024 are well advanced and we'll be announcing some dates very soon. If you would like to host an Eastern Promise event, then do get in touch via Mike Rigby at easternpromise.site or go to our website at easternpromise.org.uk and click on Contact. Meanwhile, keeping things simple is Michelle Chambers, Business Development Manager at Chaplin Farrant, who wants to add a brand new shiny architectural technologist and a qualified architect onto Santa's Christmas list for some exciting projects in the new year? Michelle assures us that they've been good. Someone who's always on his best behaviour is Hugh Sayer, chief engagement officer, business writer and editor, brand builder, marketing communicator, knowledge sharer, facilitator and experienced Ned. Ned. First on Hugh's list is a meritorious request, full devolution, including an elected mayor and councillors, elected using proportional voting, not first past the post, and for Norfolk and Suffolk to continue working together to promote the east of England. Uh, Disappointingly, Hugh doesn't specify whether the mayor and the councillors should have eagle-eye action and kung-fu grip. Hugh joins Adam Peed in wanting a new train set for Christmas. Faster, smoother, more affordable train links, particularly between Norwich, Cambridge, and Ipswich, which means a new twin track rail bridge at Trouse and fixing the Ely and Hawley junctions. I recently attended a Connexon event at the Gonville Hotel in Cambridge, run by Paula Beckenstein, MCIM commercial biopharma executive, senior advisor, board director, mentor, serial connector and relentless optimist. Alongside Lee Pugh and Hazel Jones and the connection event was truly exceptional. Paula has some first-class names who've been extra good in 2023. The team at O2H Group, Prashant Shah and Sunil Shah for delivering the first ever Cambridge Open Day. Also to Cambridge Wireless, Chris Bruce and Rachel Kerr and team for our first ever Cambridge Tech Week. Both events, great gifts to our city. I couldn't agree more, Paula. Chris Bruce has been twice a guest on this very podcast and Prashant and I are doing the dance of the diaries as we speak. So you've that to look forward to in the new year. Paula also salutes another former guest on this podcast and rightly so. The truly lovely, Harriet Fear, MBE, after another great year of work with Cambridge And. She's stepping down and she will be missed. She will indeed, Paula. But Harriet herself says, fear not! She's staying on at Cambridge And as a SPAD, that's special advisor for those not steeped in the law, to new director Duncan McCunn. Harriet will be part-time and remaining in the wings, looking forward to a portfolio of exciting things in her new life. Harriet, our chat remains one of my highlights from two years of running the Eastern Promise podcast, and it remains both a joy and a privilege for myself and Eastern Promise to be full-throated in our support for everything Cambridge and continues to do, for your work with Cambridge ahead, and everything you will no doubt go on to do for the city and the region. You've been my gateway to Cambridge, and I couldn't have made my way into the ecosystem so successfully without your help and advice. Thank you. New to the wonderful world of Crowd Sorcery. Crowd Sorcery. Thank you. Is Caroline Reed, Chief Executive Officer for Groundwork East. Welcome, Carolyn. She writes, Mike, it's your East of England Elves here, Groundwork East. Actually, I think I need to read that again with an appropriate alteration. It's your East of England elves here, Groundwork East. We've been asked to help Santa out. With the wish for as many VCSEs, that's Voluntary Community and Social Enterprise Organisations as possible from across the east of England to benefit from the government's £25.5 million funding package to help improve their energy efficiency. (coughs) Mm. Sorry Carolyn, couldn't resist. Uh, Despite my violating elfin safety. Oh come on, it's Christmas! This is a very important programme. The VCSE Energy Efficiency Scheme is offering independent energy assessments to help identify energy-saving opportunities in your building. From January, the scheme will also be offering capital grants to implement measures recommended in your assessment. Applicants' organisations must be a VCSE based in England and delivering frontline services they must be able to demonstrate that they are financially sustainable, require support around energy and are not suitable for blended finance or loan support through other schemes. For more information, energy assessments and capital grants apply here www.groundwork.org.uk forward slash VCSE Energy Efficiency all one word Let us conclude, though, with some ambitious but righteous asks. Saul Humphrey, managing partner of Saul D. Humphrey, LLP, brackets, certified B Corp, professor at Anglia Ruskin University, chair of Institute of Directors Norfolk, chair of New Anglia LEP's Building Growth Group, and non-executive director, says, How about a really ambitious deal to conclude COP28 UAE, with a binding commitment to phase out fossil fuels? We simply must stop producing more oil, gas and coal. Perhaps I'm seeking more of a miracle than a Christmas present. And then I'd like a season ticket for Tottenham with a guarantee that they will win all games. Saul, you know me. The impossible I do straight away. Miracles take longer. I leave you to decide which is which. Lastly, Tarquin Bennett Coles senior partner at SCI Partners, advisor for Little Bean Journey, pro bono mentor for the Hommet and Changemakers, and careers in healthcare supporter for the MBA and EMBA students at the Judge Institute. Tarquin picks a typically brilliant quote from US President John F. Kennedy to illustrate his wish for Santa to grant us at least a year of celebrating all our similarities, openly embracing diversity in all its forms, reminding us that In the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. That, plus a voucher for FOP in Cambridge. Tarquin, I'm afraid I'm not able to confirm whether President Kennedy ever received a voucher for FOP in Cambridge. So I hope you can find the receipt. Yes, yes, I know, the voucher was for Tarquin, but... And seriously, though, I'd be very interested to know what you'd get with that voucher, Tarquin. Why? Well, because I'm nosy, obviously. Thank you all so much for those fantabulous suggestions. Let's hope 2024 is the year of the pleasant surprise, and speaking of which, Crowd Sorcery will return in 2024... Well, I'll be looking at your New Year's resolutions, including how many you've already broken. In fact, when we return on the 11th of January 2024, I'll be chatting to Waveney MP Peter Aldous about how the energy sector has transformed Lowestoft, how he wants to see that regeneration continue to deliver for his constituents and the wider region. We'll also be talking about his role as co-chairman of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for the East of England and answering the big questions, such as which MP he'd prefer to be trapped with in a lift. And that's it for the East and Promise podcast in 2023. It's been a huge year for East and Promise, but our plans for 2024 include more live events, More in our Norfolk Brex meets Cambridge series. More from the Suffolk Energy Coast. More supporting our friends and colleagues across the region, including another trip on the train. I want to thank all our friends at Mills & Reeve for their support this year, which has frankly been transformative. In particular, I want to thank Lucy Hamilton, Matt Skipper, Christine Joyce and especially the wonderful Deborah Dawson. Thank you to Sally Osborne, whose patience this year has been, if not inexhaustible, then certainly elastic. Thank you too to the maestro of the megahertz, the king of the kilohertz, and pharaoh of the fader, Engineer 49. Thank you to all our guests and everyone who has seen and understood what Eastern Promise as a wider organization is trying to achieve. The exploration of the full potential of the East of England, whether as a whole or or in part. Lastly, thank you to you for listening. I'm always amazed that people are listening in the UK, the USA, the EU, and all around the world. Have a very Merry Christmas, and let's meet back here in 2024, okay? Bye for now! to hear other episodes of the Eastern Promise podcast. And to find out more about what we do, go to our website at easternpromise.org.uk. Eastern Promise is a Pryor's Croft production in association with
4: Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together.